there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Angelo Dundee wants to stop the fight. That's it. They stopped the fight at TKO. It'll be scored as a technical knockout. Larry Holmes managed to TKO Muhammad Ali in the 11th round of a title fight. Thunder the Barbarian premiered on Saturday morning TV. The very first use of home banking by computer took place in Knoxville, Tennessee, and John Lennon... released his terrific single just like starting over in the uk forget all of that though because there was a crazy and diverse list of films released in october of 1980 all right welcome to uh 80s all over as always i'm drew mcqueenie and i'm joined by my co-host the illustrious scott weinberg what's up sir hello drew hello listeners happy new year to everybody out there Uh, happy 2017 exactly yeah yeah let's hope that uh 2017 has Less bad news and more good news for everybody. <laughs> exactly. Um, some good news. We are going to be doing a best of 1980 episode in addition to our regular breakdown month by month. We're going to do that right after we do December of 1980. I can't believe we're almost done with the first year, Scott. I know. It's so much fun working with me. Every single day is a joy because I know you're going to call me. So <laughs> I feel like this back to back of October 1980 and November 1980 kind of points out the feast or famine that we had at that point where some months would be insane and you get tons and tons of movies and you wouldn't keep up with everything and stuff would vanish. And then there'd be months where nothing came out. It felt like, yeah, I, I, what's interesting is looking back as we do month by month and looking at the list of movies we do each month, I am vaguely reminded of how movies went in cycles, you know, like during the spring and summer, my friends and my family and I, or sometimes occasionally by myself, I would see a movie every weekend. And then there were months now thinking back, there were months where I saw maybe one. That's how things were now. Then if you if you have it in your head today in 2017 that I want to watch a relatively new movie, uh, you can go home and pick between dozens and dozens of really good movies, and they're streamed into your house for less than $5. Streamed that- into your house. There's <laughs> always something in a theater. There's there, You're genuinely, whoever you are, you're probably pretty well served by movies at this point. We're going to start... Going through the films of October of, of 1980. And Drew, why don't you start us I'm ex- off with? I'm super excited about this one. Uh, this is one of those films that I think if you know what it is, you have a fondness for it. Um, it is a movie that may have the best theme of any film that we've discussed so far on this podcast. And I am including The Empire Strikes Back on that list. I'm talking, of course, about John Barry's theme for the lovely Somewhere in Time. A story of two people in love. Two people out of time. Two people whose passion 
bridges history. Jane Seymour and Christopher Reeve are trapped in love somewhere in time. When I was a kid, my mom and my sister liked it. Uh, and to me, it had so Christopher Reeve, Superman in the lead role in a time travel story. And I thought, wow, you know, that would totally be up my alley. But it is a period piece. And as such, I had no interest in that at eight or nine years old. And therefore, it took me many, many years to appreciate Somewhere in Time, which is based on a novel by Richard Matheson, who also yep. adapted the screenplay. I saw it when I was 20, 25, and I absolutely love it. I love every facet of it. I think it's sincere and, and beautiful to look at. I think the cast is great. It's a really clever time travel take. Look, this is adapted, like you said, it's from one of the, the books by Richard Matheson. And he is, in a lot of ways, the, the film feels like a very long, leisurely, sweet, episode of the twilight zone you know what though drew real quick they squeeze a lot of story into this movie with the time travel and the romance and the two different periods there's a lot of interesting fictional rigmarole in this movie and it's only like 105 minutes the the basic idea is very simple he is approached by an old woman at the beginning who is watching this student have his first moment of success he's like a playwright he's still in college it's his first produced play and at the end of the play, as everybody's congratulating him and stuff, this really old woman in her 80s walks up and gives him a pocket watch and says, come back to me. Then she goes back to her hotel where she lives, goes into her room and dies. And that's a great setup. That hook by itself is such a great setup. And to me, is that same thing that Matheson did so well, which was he knew exactly how to bait an audience into an idea. Yeah. And yeah. if you look at if you look at his track record, he wrote I Am Legend, the novel. He wrote What Dreams May Come. He wrote The Incredible Shrinking Man. He wrote The Trilogy of Terror for TV. He wrote Duel. He wrote tons of the original Twilight Zone I episodes. One. I got including one. Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Oh, you stole mine. You stole mine. As you were rattling them off, I'm like... <laughs> And he was so good at that. He was so good at the simple idea that he then ran a variation on. And Duel is a great example of that, where yes. it's it's literally he was on the freeway. A truck fucked with him a little bit, and he pulled off to the side of the road shaky, and Duel popped into his head. He had a way, a knack of finding the right hook for something. One and of my uh, one of my favorite authors, anybody who loves sci-fi or horror or dark thrillers should pick up any collection by Richard Matheson. His short stories and his novellas are fantastic. A yeah. lot of the movies based on his films are actually pretty decent. Pretty great so, track record. It's seriously. Yeah. And if you look at the length of that track record, The Incredible Shrinking Man is one of the most influential films of the my 50s, favorite, for God's sake. My favorite sci-fi film ever. More than Star Wars, more than E.T., more than 2001. I absolutely love Jack Arnold's Incredible Shrinking Man. It was the first science fiction film that ever made me like, whoa, what happened to him after the movie? Did he just keep getting smaller? Like, as a kid, you don't know the words for subtext and theme and symbolism, but you can grasp that, the themes of something, something large and impressive and thought-provoking. And Incredible Shrinking Man is amazing. We could do an entire episode of, of 80s movies based on Richard Matheson, and that would take 10 episodes. One of the things that really makes the film work, and I would love to take this opportunity to be the first of many times that we're going to talk about him over the course of the podcast, but Christopher Reeve, I know that we all remember him as Superman. I think we underrate him in general. Yeah, I, see, I, 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 I agree. He has an earnestness that he is able to tap into as an actor, which is part of what makes him so good at Superman. See, 
I think but he's Trude, also think, uncomfortable I, in his skin in a way that I find fascinating because he's beautiful. Like, I really think he was great at tapping into this discomfort and this I don't fit. And it has to work for this movie. He has there has to be a reason that we root for him to leave his time and his world behind. He was so striking in a physical way. He was oh, yeah. super tall, game show host, handsome, like ridiculous handsome. But it also kind of pigeonholes you into certain roles so that when he was trying to maybe be a wise ass or a tough guy or a sniveling this or that's tough to sell. I think he's great here. I think this yeah. is this is how you use him. You get the feeling there's there's something different going on inside than outside. Yeah. And he has a couple of moments here. His I think one of the biggest is when he first sees the picture of her. One of the things that the film does so well that I think anybody who likes I don't time think we've travel who her is who is ah, the is beautiful the, oh the ethereal beautiful doesn't cover it lots of most women are beautiful dig she's, deeper for Jane Seymour she's magical here part of the appeal of the film is the moment he first sees her not realizing that she's the old woman is when he sees a portrait of her a photo that was taken and that moment. 90% of Chris Reeve's work is in that moment because he has to sell that it's a thunderbolt that hits him, that makes him obsessed with the idea of I'm going to go back to that moment. I'm going to fall in love with her. This is all going to happen for real somehow. I'm going to make it happen now. Oddly well-directed by Juno's work, who uh, we know from Jaws 2, of course. Who was a, and who was a joke after Jaws 2, even though yeah. that made money. The reviews, every review for that film, and I felt for this poor guy because yep. every review was... And he's not Steven Spielberg, which yeah. is a hard fucking thing to yeah. have to shoulder. Even if the even if the Jaws two screenplay is pretty basic and simplistic, yeah. it's a fairly well directed thriller. Jaws he 2, did what he was hired you know, to do. Yeah. You can like it or hate it, but Jaws two is a well made thriller. Let, let's not ramble on too long. I think that this might be our pick of the month. Let Let's reserve that uh, until the end. But and the John Barry theme. And again, this is a movie that I always thought was a quote-unquote girls movie. And then I saw it in my 20s, and I thought, really clever time travel, really sweet romance. And, and a unique uh, yeah. mechanic for time travel. That's something yes. that's, that yes. you can't put a price tag on because, man, every time travel variation has been run. And I think this one, very clever, very simple. Once you get it, it's out of the way, and you don't have to deal with the rules anymore or the none of that. It's just right. this is how it works. Highly recommended. Somewhere in time. Uh, mm -hmm. All right, Drew, our next movie is uh, holds a special place in my heart, even though it's a little dry and starchy in some places. And that's why I truly believe it would be perfect pickings for a remake. An odd, interesting little horror movie called Fade to Black. Twinkle, twinkle, movie star. Eric knows just where you are. Try to run, try to hide. You won't get out of this alive. Dennis Christopher in Fade to Black. Rated R. 
it's about a, a young man named Eric Binford who is the worst kind of movie geek you can imagine, like the guy at parties who has to like talk particularly loud about the subtext of the Kubrick scene. And uh, he's kind of insufferable, but in typical B-movie fashion, he's also a misfit who's a little bit sympathetic because he's a loner and kind of weird. So he gets crossed, he goes nuts, and he starts killing off his rivals, one of whom is a young Mickey Rourke dressed up as different movie characters from Dracula and the Mummy to, uh, I believe it's Hopalong Cassidy, there's a gangster, and uh, it's Dennis Christopher who made this right between Breaking Away and Chariots of Fire, which is very interesting, and he's an underrated actor, uh, maybe a bit over the top, but that seems to be what they're going for, it, it, like a slightly more sanitized taxi driver vibe. Written and directed by Vernon Zimmerman, who did not have all that great of a career, but did go on to write the cult classic Teen Witch. Top that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, who earlier in his career worked with Terrence Malick on the film Deadhead Miles. Terrence Malick co-wrote Deadhead Miles, which Vernon Zimmerman directed. I appreciate 80s all over for bringing me such clever, <laughs> interesting information. I'm going to leave an iTunes review about how astute and insightful you are. Top that. Uh, but do you agree with my assessment? Do you like it more or less than I do? And Drew, would you be interested in co-writing a, a remake of this movie with me? First of all, you're 100% right. This movie is ripe for a remake. And I will sum up why in two words. Tim Thomerson. His movie that he's in as the cop who is as Dr. Moriarty, the cop who is chasing Dennis Christopher totally different movie and not a good one and it's a shockingly different movie it's schizophrenic in a major way and i think that the dennis christopher stuff you're right this is right after he was he had the heat of breaking away and you got to remember like that put him on the map the way that ordinary people put timothy hutton on the map there were oscar nominated performances that launched these young actors into suddenly being like the top of the game and dennis christopher made very odd choices for the majority of his career. And he's had moments like it, uh, Chariots of Fire. He recently was in Django Unchained. He certainly has stayed alive. I remember when I was doing a play called Broken Bones, we were reading people for it. And Dennis Christopher came in and read for us. And this had to be like 95, 96, probably. I thought he was fascinating in the room, but the exact reason he was interesting in the room was that strange tension of I'm probably pretty smart. I can make good choices as an actor, but I'm also a giant handful and I'm strange. Yeah, and doesn't he kind of remind you of a ver uh, in this movie in particular, like a wired Gary Oldman? Absolutely. And there's this weird tension about him where he always feels like he's about to jump out of his skin. Right. And, and Even run. people who are trying to like empathize and he snaps at them. It just it taps into that dream world where most movie geeks know by the time they're 13 or 14 that, okay, I don't exist in the movie world, but you know what? I will pretend I'm Mad Max in my head. You know, this posits that perhaps, uh, you know, this is the worst case scenario. I think it wants to be like that one of those Misfit Strikes Back movies like Willard and Carrie. Yes. Uh, and, and it plays That's like exactly that. right. Horror fans, dig this one up, check it out, and let us know what you think. Okay, so here, watch my segue. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned is that young Mickey Rourke is in this, and I love Mickey Rourke in this precisely because he has that weird thing that um, Al Pacino has, where when he was younger, his voice was kind of up here compared to where it ends up. 
yeah. as an actor. And so this is Mickey Rourke back when he's got that high pitched voice and he's like this. It's like half Mickey Rourke, half Mickey Mouse. The reason that our next film is notable is because in one scene as an extra, if you look closely, you can see Bruce Willis. So it is a very, very early appearance for him, possibly his very first time on film. How is that even a segue at all? Because I'm going from early, early Mickey Rourke to early, early, early Bruce Willis. Oh, you know what? Segways are overrated. Stop hurting. You don't uh, stretch your... Okay. All right. Well, whatever. Our next film's the first deadly sin. The act of dying is the ultimate act of surrendering. In the city, there's a man loose who kills. And a woman cries to live. That lady in there is my wife. She's my whole world. Do you understand that? The first deadly sin. Starring Frank Sinatra and Faye Dunaway. The first deadly sin. From Filmways Pictures. Rated R. Dun dun. Frank Sinatra. <laughs> hey, is Faye. this our first? Hey, I don't interrupt first... my trailer. Faye Dunaway. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I didn't realize you were doing a trailer. Pardon me. I was. I was doing. That's my trailer voice. Is this our first Brenda Vaccaro sighting for 80s all over? I guess so. It's Honey, I'm so excited. Finally, Brenda Vaccaro's here. I just watched this one yesterday for the very first time. I had never seen it. I don't believe I'd ever seen it. But I've read all the Lawrence Sanders novels. I kind of like the guy. I like the writer. And the, the novels, there's four of these with the character, the detective, who is played by Frank Sinatra in the film. This is a, well, I'm going to say it's a murder mystery, but it's barely a murder mystery. Oh, I thought you were going to say boring. <laughs> yeah, well, it is boring, but it's barely Ooh. a murder mystery. It's a slasher movie mixed with this melodrama about a detective and his dying wife. <laughs> it's barely a slasher movie. It's got <laughs> that end of the film is given such short shrift. And it's interesting because there's so much of the movie devoted to long scenes of Frank Sinatra and Faye Dunaway making goo goo eyes at each other way more than you would think possible, because every time uh, he goes to see his wife who has emergency kidney surgery during the opening credits of the film the movie stops cold for 30 minutes real time as they talk about their marriage and the past and how much he loves her and the flowers he brought her and the food they ate at the hospital and it is fucking mind-boggling how much yeah. of the movie is given over to that there's a serial killer stalking the streets and of course he's the only one who seems to give a crap and also his wife is dying unfortunately for everybody involved including us who have to watch it this is not a good film and i know frank sinatra has given good performances before but now here's the thing i don't think he's bad in the movie i think the movie's fucking bonkers there's moments in the movie where frank is right on and he's good and he's loose and he's got this natural presence um there's a performance in the film by martin gable who plays this professor or no he's a curator at a museum and he's a weapons expert he is captain exposition in the movie he's the guy who has to explain where the weapon came from and how they put all the pieces together to figure it out and it's his last performance in films this dude is aiming for the back wall of the theater every single second he's on screen and it is crazy watch the scene where he goes to this hardware store and just asks like five questions of a guy about mountain climbing equipment and you will think you're watching the most important senatorial floor debate from spielberg's lincoln like the way this guy is playing it tell me about this well this is an ice axe it's used mostly for glacier climbing you know as a cane or you can drive it into the ice as a rope support when is uh this used well, at extremely high altitudes, when the ice is like concrete, this is used to chop out hand and footholds. Is there a shorter model? 
Well, you want an ice hammer. Why didn't you say so in the first place? How's that? Perfect. My dear, you've made an aging curator. Ecstatic. And I kind of love performances like that. And this has got a, by the way, this is like white guy heaven. James Whitmore, George Coe, Frank Sinatra, Martin G- It's a lot of old white dudes solving this crime. Well, and it's crazy because this was going to be um, uh, Faye Dunaway and Roman Polanski's follow up to Chinatown together. This was this was Polanski. He was he developed a script. He worked all the way through. It, it was supposed to be um, a movie originally in the 70s when he came out. And uh, Sinatra was attached as a producer, stayed with it all the way through. Brian Hutton came in and Brian Hutton. For those of you who don't know his name. Brian Hutton's one of those directors who I find fascinating because he came out of the actor's studio in the 50s. He was a bit part actor. He did a million Westerns. He was a character guy and then jumped to being a director and never made the same film twice. And the stuff he made, he would make he made like macho action movies like where Eagles Dare and Kelly's Heroes and turned around and made several uh, crazy Elizabeth Taylor movies in a row, X, Y and Z and Night Watch. And then became the replacement for Roman Polanski on a Frank Sinatra crime movie. Talk about a weird near ending to his career. This is one of his last films before he got out and sold real estate for 20 years. Um, But it's got these moments that almost work. The way the film ends is very different than the book and is kind of a 70s, late 70s moral ambiguity ending that asks you a moral question about what would you do? And then just when they nail the ending and they do this right, then they go and they play 10 more minutes of melodrama with his dying wife that undermines yeah, it, every it, good impulse. It really seems like they had an, a 70 minute crime thriller. And then, you know, Sinatra had said, hey, uh, me and Faye Dunaway want to try and do something for like, if not Oscar bait, then at least dramatic cred. And so they yeah. wedged in a melodrama amidst this movie. It's not a good film. I'd like to move on now. I, I'm willing to wager that. Most people of our age who have seen this film saw it because they were a big fan of Pump Up the Volume, looked up who directed it, and dug back to find a film starring Tim Curry called Times Square. This is Nikki Murata, famous murderer and entertainer. I'm throwing a concert tonight in Times Square to celebrate my escape from mental illness. Don't miss it. coming together. Pammy and Nikki found each other and themselves on the streets of New York. Now, the whole city is going to share their exhilaration. The venue will be Times Square. I say Tim Curry is the star, but it's actually about two young girls who make their way out of a, a, a mental institution they are uh, not not ha- crazily handicapped, but they are offbeat and wacky in a movie way. And they are off to live on the glorious, beautiful streets of Times Square, New York. And it's not very interesting, frankly. Drew, what do you, what's your take on Times Square? It's one of those movies that I should love. Like it, it hits a lot of the things that, especially when I saw it in 8081, I really was ready to to be fascinated by this it's you know they run away they go to new york they are living sort of the the punk fringe lifestyle yeah tim curry is the all-night dj he is the uh, uh senior love daddy of this movie where he basically is looking down at times square and commenting on it the girls are the ones that 
should have to carry the whole movie. And I just don't think the, uh, I just don't think the script is very good or very smart about young women in the early eighties. You know, Alan Moyle, who, who went on to do pump up the volume and empire records and a couple of other films. I met him when he was doing the, the Q and a stuff for pump up the volume. And he talked about how he was an authentic punk and he came out of the punk scene in the eighties and that he wanted to get New York on film. There's nothing compelling about the scene that he captures in this movie. And if this is supposed to be a movie about the appeal and the romance and why people run away and why Times Square is the magnet that draws people to it and how you survive there, it doesn't work as any of that. It doesn't work as a, a social picture about like the various levels of what's going on in Times Square. It doesn't work as a movie about the seductive nature of the lifestyle. It's not even like entertaining in a you know Legend of Billie Jean kind of teen empowerment vibe because you know you're watching two fractured young women who all they want to be free and to them free is sleeping on the street in a urine soaked alley and yeah it's got some it's got some decent cinematography you know there's a there's a a side of new york that you're not going to see anymore and that's always interesting to see of the two girls i thought trini alvarado was fairly and she went on to a better career she was she's interesting and and certainly has her moments tim curry makes just about anything watchable he's not uh, front and center, but he he does alleviate some of the tedium. Uh, overall, I would call Times Square a miss unless you are a, a fan of young female empowerment films. It's definitely uh, interesting in that facet. Uh, I don't know if it sends a great message, but it's not a very interesting movie. My next film, I would say, becomes most interesting when looked at through the prism of its place in terms of feminist cinema history. There's only one thing wrong with Kate's life. She does everything right. But she never knew what she was missing until she met Mr. Wrong. Why are your clothes so dumb? You're dumb. I'm a ball player. You're gonna get it this time. You are gonna get it bad. I'm ready. Jill Claver, Michael Douglas, Charles Grodin. It's my turn. Rated R. The movie itself is pretty much a litany of scenes where characters kind of throw feminist jargon from 1980 back and forth. And it feels like a movie that is designed literally to give voice to debate ideas about feminism and pop culture at that moment. Like that is the whole purpose of the film. It's Jill Clayburg is a math professor and Michael Douglas is a baseball player, a professional <laughs> baseball player who's retired, who meet at a wedding, her dad, I think it is, and his yeah, mom and his are mom. getting married. So they meet and then they from the, the rest of the movies, them sparring back and forth about ideas. And the thing that makes it interesting in terms of its larger place in this, this continuum is it was directed by Claudia Weil. And Claudia Weil directed the terrific Girlfriends in 1978, which is a movie that I think is essential if you want to talk about the history of, of women in independent cinema. Girlfriends is a knockout. It's a great, great movie. And you absolutely should track it down for that. It is written by... Uh, Eleanor Bergstein, who, of course, is most celebrated, known as the writer of Dirty Dancing, uh, which is a huge landmark movie in terms of the fact that it's it's a very personal film that became a giant juggernaut successful hit. And I think helped establish that there was an audience that was hungry for that kind of film that was a real commercial force. So I, I think that those two artists together, seeing Claudia Weil film directed or written by Eleanor Bergstein, that's one other reason you should track down. It's my turn. Clayberg and Michael Douglas in the movie, they're fine. It's its fine. Charles Grodin is fine. It's not particularly funny. Charles Grodin is not 
is is on hand as uh, kind of wasted. And yeah, it's Charles Grodin. He was a machine at this point. Yeah, the the performances were all good, but it seems like after an unmarried woman, it was just oh, Jill Clayburgh is the person you get for feminist issue movies, and unmarried woman is a smart, subtle drama. This movie, it's my turn. I think the movie can't tell if it wants to be a uh, a serious film about important issues or if it wants to be a very uh, light romantic farce. Uh, and I and as such, I don't I don't think it really succeeds at either. So, uh, Scott, what's next? Our next film is probably <laughs> the only horror film you'll ever see in which David Copperfield co-stars with Jamie Lee Curtis and that obnoxious, smarmy executive from Die Hard. 20th Century Fox invites you to join the boys and girls of Sigma Phi for their annual New Year's Eve party. This year is a masquerade on wheels, and the person behind you could be your best friend or the last person you see on Earth. Experience the most terrifying ride of your life on the Terror Train, rated R. Starts October 3rd at a selected theater near you. You know, we've talked about this in previous episodes. Are we still stuck in the slasher film as limp, unconvincing mystery thriller? Is that Are we still in that realm? I feel like this film, more than yeah. almost any other from the transition period between the pure slasher films that came later and the murder mysteries that came before this, I think this film kind of navigates it right. I think yeah. it's definitely a murder mystery, but it's a pretty spirited slasher film as yeah. well and a it pretty effective fun. movie. I like it. I was kind yeah. of leading you in one direction because I was wondering if you were going to be like, yeah, it kind of stinks. Nope. I like yeah. Terror Train and I was hoping when I revisited it that I'm like, oh God, please don't be boring and dreary because a lot of these ones I revisit not so hot. Uh, Terror Train is fun. It does star Hart Bachner, Jamie Lee Curtis and David Copperfield. Yes, and it, does. Uh, it is about college kids in general partying on a train and a mask wielding slasher who uh, Three years after a prank gone terribly wrong. You gotta, you know, stop doing pranks. Pranks will inevitably lead to slashers. That is the, Worst, the main I mean, rule. All right. Uh, you do a prank. Best case scenario. Somebody gets scared. Ha ha. And you forget about it five minutes later. Worst case. You kill or scar someone like in prom night and they come back and they kill eight people on prom night. Stop. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? Uh, And I think part of the reason terror train is, is still kind of buoyant all these years later is that it was directed by a guy who knew how to keep things moving. Roger Spottiswood directed one of my favorite films that we'll get to later called shoot to kill. Uh, he also did some pretty bad stuff. He did like Air America and Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. But Terror Train is fun. It's a you know it's dated, of course, but um, you know if if you have an affection for slasher slash mysteries of this era, this one has a colorful cast. It moves pretty well, and uh, it's Jamie Lee Curtis. Aside from Halloween, which obviously like Road Games is good. This is good. Like she had a decent eye. And I think was seriously trying to find. Yeah, you know what? That's true. She got lucky. Of, uh, she could have done a lot of junkier ones. Prom oh, I guarantee so she cool. got offered everything, dude. She yeah. got offered everything after Halloween. There's no way she didn't get every single slasher movie script. The stuff she picked, it, she seemed to have an eye for directors, actual guys who might know what they were doing. You know, whether it be Richard Franklin for Rogue Games, who we'll get into, and who's a great lovely, interesting Australian artist, or like you said, Spottiswoode. And one of the reasons I think Spottiswoode worked so well when he worked 
you mentioned that you thought this thing had a really great sense of pace and that it keeps moving and everything. He was an editor first, and he was an editor for some really demanding guys. Roger Spottiswoe cut Straw Dogs. Roger Spottiswoe cut ah. The Gambler, cut Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and Hard Times. He was a good editor. like He knew what he was doing. So I think he had a real sense already of how to shape material and how to how to get a sense of motion. And so I think when he hit the ground running as a director and Terror Train is his first film as a director, I think he did a really good job. And I think he had an energy that carries to the cast and everything else as a great villain reveal. I think the scene where the villain lays everything out and, and monologues is great. It sets up some nice atmosphere on the train that, you know, you can't get off and there's some claustrophobia there. It's fun. All right. So, Drew. Speak going from a a sl- a mild cult classic in Terror Train to a film that virtually nobody in the universe ever even remembers. This is one of the reasons I want to do the podcast because when you're talking about what the '80s was, and you're talking about that list of the 15 or 20 films that everybody knows and they get canonized and then they make the T-shirts for, you forget what else was going on. And Coast to Coast with Richard Blake and Diane Cannon embodies a lot of what was happening in the early 80s. Hi gang, Robert Blake here. It's always been my ambition to work in a genteel, elegant film. That'll be my next movie. But in Coast to Coast, Diane Cannon and me are up to our bananas in trouble. It ain't nothing but a riot. So if you want to have a good time, go see Coast to Coast. I think it's trying to be a screwball comedy. And it is a uh, rich woman whose husband is trying to have her committed because she's trying to leave him and divorce him and she wants to take his money. And so he arranges to have her committed to a uh, mental institution and um, she manages to get out and um, leave and flee. And the guy that she asks for help is Robert Blake, who's a truck driver. His idea is he's going to take her across the country and turn her in for the reward. Her idea is she's going to take him across the country. She's going to be able to get her hands on some money and she'll be able to confront her husband who had her committed to the mental institution. And it's supposed to be hilarious. And they're supposed to have and learn to love each other as they drive across the country. And Robert Blake is a creep. He's as charming Uh, as a tree stump. And she, while beautiful and has, of course, been very good in other films, Diane Cannon is at one pitch in this movie. And it really starts to grate on the nerves how shrieky and loud she is. Let's put it this way. How do you feel about Willie Scott and Temple of Doom? Because if yeah, you thought, yeah. I'd really like to see that, but turned up and less pleasant. They go in across the road. Now they're having an exploit at a gas station. And oh, now there's hijinks at this uh, food market. And it's just there's the people chasing them and nothing really comes of that. That in theory, that should be a lot of fun. And it's just leaden. As a writing exercise, watch this and watch Midnight Run back to back. Look at why one of them is sensational wall to wall and why the other one feels like you're being punished. I cannot fucking wait until we cover Midnight Run. Oh, don't even start because I'll start quoting it. And then then, then this is over because I'll just quote Midnight Run. Why are you not popular with the Chicago Police Department? Oh, (laughs) you seen any suspicious looking characters around here? No. Do you live around here? Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to move on. (laughs) Coast to Coast is a forgotten, justifiably forgotten screwball farce. From the director of Jaws the Revenge. 
Yeah, Joseph Sargent no, he couldn't. I mean, he he did. I think he did Pelham one, two, three, right? The original. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. He has directed some good films, but he's also, uh, you know, carpetbagger did a lot of junk. Uh, <laughs> speaking of junk, we're gonna move past coast to coast and go to a a another deadly unfunny comedy in like we mentioned in either in earlier episodes that like the concept of suburban malaise. Uh, and this this uh, came out in a lot of broad farces like Serial and Middle Age Crazy. And now we have a divorce and adultery obsessed screwball wannabe called Loving Couples. In this era of marital malpractice. I'm a surgeon and not the marriage counselor. Rundown relationships. I guess I've made you pretty unhappy. Yeah. And fractured romance. We have candlelight. Music in the background, tinkling of glasses, good wine. Now, what else? What else do you want? I just wish you didn't need to ask that question. Everyone's entitled to a second opinion in medicine and in love. It's all going to end on that note. Do you remember how T.S. Eliot said the world would end? No, I never read him. He said it would end with a whimper and not a bang. Loving couples. It is James Coburn married to Shirley MacLaine, and it yep. is uh, Stephen Collins together with Susan Sarandon. And those people intermingle and cheat on each other with one another. Desperate, unfunny, strained sitcom level comedy. Well, the guy who wrote it, and and let's take a moment to talk about him because he Martin Donovan, not the actor that you immediately picture when I say that name, but the Martin Donovan who wrote this was a guy who, he was Argentinian, he moved to America. I mean, he was a huge TV guy. This guy wrote for everything. That Girl and The Partridge Family and Mary Tyler Moore and The Odd Couple. Like, he was that era of TV, and he wrote a ton of it. And then Loving Couples was his breakthrough as a feature. And I get the premise, which is a couple's therapy. They're each having an affair. They each decide to take a trip with their person they're cheating with and accidentally end up at the same hotel. And then hilarity ensues. That's an old farce setup and not a terribly interesting one, but whatever. The film that this guy wrote later that I love, Death Becomes Her, and I and he wrote a little bitty movie that we will cover called Apartment Zero. But we'll get to that later in this decade. But he's one of those guys who, man, he plugged away and plugged away and plugged away. And this thing was the breakthrough. And I I wish it were great because I like him and I like his story and I like a lot of what he did. But Uh, it's interesting to know that he cut his teeth on a lot of really great, great sitcoms because loving couples, most of it feels like jokes that were tossed out of his pitch meeting because they were strange. They were old hat in, in 1940. If you uh, gave a shit about any of these characters, it might have worked. And I think that's what the sitcom stuff was, was he had characters that people loved, so you could write well with them. I just Drew, don't what, think this this isn't a good one. So, What is our next forgotten effluvium from 1980? Ooh. Guys, get ready, because the party starts here with, oh, God, book two. This is God speaking. Yeah, God. Haven't heard from me lately, huh? Well, I just finished a new movie called Oh God, Book Two, starring George Burns. That's right, I made another movie. And it'll have just as many laughs as the first one. You know, this picture does as well as I think it will. I may not work again for another 10,000 years. Oh God, Book Two, from Warner Brothers, rated PG. Opens October 3rd. Check newspaper for local listing. 
Uh, I will cede this to you because I think this movie is innocuous, forgettable, unfunny, tiresome, dreary. But what I will say is that George Burns is very charming. Suzanne Plachette does what she can. And the original Oh God is actually quite charming. Yeah, the original God's fine, and uh, in a movie that I like, I don't love, and it's one of those, you get the joke, and then they run the variation on that joke over and over. This one, I have a special dislike of, an intense, passionate dislike of, that has very little to do with the film. My parents invested in one of the first video stores in Chattanooga, and so a lot of the uh, videotapes that would come to the house, we would process at the house, and that would be our chance to watch them, and if we liked them, you know, maybe we'd uh, run it through both of the VCRs and then we keep it at the house as well. So we had a shitload of pirated videotapes. Got here that FBI come That's get it. Right. Yes. And if you need to arrest somebody, please arrest my sister. And here's why. Because she watched Oh God Book Two every day for about 17 months to the point where I get a twitch now if I see the poster of George Burns on the motorcycle. Oh, and that that young that girl's awful awful haircut oh my yeah. god yeah luann oh. was her name she worked for a little while and she did guest appearances on like the love boat and mork and mindy and stuff this was her her big film and she was the main kid she's the one that sees god and has the back and forth with george burns i i can't see a picture of her i can't hear her voice uh i i i hate this movie so much and it is an example of the diminishing return of comedy sequels, because the joke in the first movie is one person can see God. Nobody else can get it. And if you didn't, here's 75 more variations. Yeah. On that and, joke. and, you know, I, I had a little fun little rant on Twitter the other night with my friends uh, about what were the worst comedy part twos. And while I might not put, oh, God, book two among the worst it perfectly encapsulates what's wrong. You just repeat the premise with slightly different characters. This movie had five writers. I, I don't know and if it, there's an and audience. The subplot here is the, the parent trap because her parents are divorced. And what reunites them is their belief that their daughter is violently mentally ill. Ill, right. It's, yeah. it's really sweet stuff, folks. We're going to move from an annoying little girl in Oh God Book 2 to an evil little girl in Mike Newell's The Awakening. They thought they had buried her forever. The Awakening. Rated R. Opens Friday, October 31st. Check newspapers for local listing. I, why don't you tell our listeners what they know Mike Newell from? Mike Newell, of course, is the director of Four Weddings and a Funeral and Donnie Brasco and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Mike Newell is, is uh, I would say, one of the hardest working of the journeyman English act, uh, directors. This is a dude who's done everything, just a depth of work because of how long he's been doing it. And having said that, I love Mike Newell's body of work. And of course, I'm a huge sucker for occult horror films. I wish that I could say that Charlton Heston in The Awakening, in which he tries to figure out if his young daughter is uh, possessed by an undead Egyptian spirit, was better than it is. It seems to be aiming for the exorcist slash omen vibe. And despite a few interesting, evocative, creepy moments, it doesn't really hold up uh, as, oh, as, much no. of a, as much of a, a story. A three act story. Drew, would you say that that is a fair or, or, or generous assessment of the awakening? I'll just say this that when Charlton Heston is in a terrible movie, 
There are few things more painful. I am, <laughs> That's I am, great. Yeah. I am blown away by Charlton Heston when he is given no direction. And I think the model for this is the omen, which is, is your kid evil or not? And the great, you know, I, I, I forget who it was, if it was Richard Donner or somebody else associated with it said that for them, the whole reason they got involved was somebody said, imagine a movie in which the dad from To Kill a Mockingbird has to murder his child and you're rooting for him to do it. OK, yeah, yeah. awesome. Great. That's such a brilliant use of an actor who's kind of an icon to subvert something. And in the omen, it does work because you have Gregory Peck who has to murder a little boy. Holy shit. That's great. Charlton Heston is a not, block of wood. Not, he's a block of wood. Not, um, uh, and, you know, and he's surrounded by wood in this movie. Susanna York, I think, is terrible. Stephanie Zimbalist, who you might know from uh, Remington Steel, tries really hard, but it's just not a film that works. And, you know, but it's no, more I've of a any, it's not even no, even no, if it had no. been like a kitschy mummy monster movie, I would have been more into that. If you're going to rip off The Exorcist and The Omen and you're going to make a boring film, shame on you. Uh, let's just move on uh, to a film that uh, I revisited this a few weeks ago and was blown away by how much I liked it. So you have wanted to be Elvis Presley since you're 13 years old. I care about our marriage breaking up. Left Maddie and me. Paul Simon and Blair Brown. One Trick Pony, a film from Warner Brothers. Opens Friday at the Uptown Theater in 35mm Dolby Stereo. Well, I am a massive Paul Simon fan. And uh, I, I think it's interesting that this would be uh, just a couple of months after Honeysuckle Rose because I think they are very similar films in that they are both just slice of life. Willie Nelson is a guy in Honeysuckle Rose who seems completely comfortable in his skin. Paul Simon, on the other hand, seems to want out of his. It is, uh, it is a very compelling, low-key story about a, a 60s folk singer who is slowly coming to realize that despite the fact that he still enjoys playing, his audience is rapidly shrinking. He cannot really uh, support his family in New York. And uh, he, that's the issue of, you know, how long do you hold on or how long do you keep playing? If you don't get a big break, you know, when does it end? And uh, Paul Simon, who is, of course, known as a world-class, brilliant musician, uh, has done his fair share of acting. And Drew, correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't he kind of remind you of a low-key Sam Rockwell? I can see that. I, part of it is the physicality. Uh, there's a scene where they first show up together, him and his band, and they're walking through the airport. And I, I said to Lisa as we were watching it, it looks like some. it looks like one of the other guys in the band brought his kid to work. Paul Simon is such a tiny little guy in this movie and they play with that. He's not unaware of the joke. Like it is not like Paul Simon's trying to look cool and fails miserably. Paul Simon deflates himself constantly. Yeah, I mean the the theme is that he is a tiny little cell well, being bounced around. He's the sitting thing. in the bathtub and his bass player comes in, big black guy and he leans around the door and he's talking to him and right before he leaves the room he looks down in the tub and he goes is that it? Paul Simon goes, hey, man, what do you want? I'm Caucasian. And he goes, you got my sympathies and walks out of the room. So, Simon, it is the anti-rock star movie. And this seems to be about the actual themes, the actual idea of there was a big movement in the 60s. I was a part of it. And while I am still revered and respected for my music, time and people have moved on. That that flower child era is is in the past. 
if that's not only how you made your living, but if that's how you define yourself and you find yourself in 1980, you know, is it heroic or is it stupid? Yeah. There's a there's another scene in the film where he has to go and he has to play for his uh, record label boss, played by Rip Torn, and Alan Garfield is there as a guy from AM Radio who's an AM Radio hit specialist. It is one of the most brutal scenes because they say, "All right, so we want you to bring out your very best stuff first, the stuff that you think is just a knockout." Go ahead, and he starts to play the song. Not only does do they interrupt it for a phone call, they interrupt it to light Rip Torn's wife's cigarette. They interrupt it for a lecture on a hook. They, it's crazy how disrespectful it is and how clearly Simon never stands a chance in that room. You know, the soundtrack captures a moment where things were changing. They play a show at one point where the opening band is the B-52s, and it's clear the crowd is there for the B-52s. Again, that's very self-effacing of Simon. Yeah. Now, here's the one place where I'm uncomfortable because there's so much that's been written about uh, Simon's big romances in the marriages and stuff that he had and Carrie Fisher being one of them and several other relationships. And they're fodder for his work. You can chart the ups and downs of them in his work. And I think on most of his songs, he's very fair about the fact that people have flaws and weaknesses and he lacerates himself and he lacerates the people that he was with just as much. But in the film, I think Blair Brown gets saddled with a, a role that I see as an archetype repeatedly, and it's a tough one. It's almost impossible for a woman to survive while she's playing it. And it is the no fun ex-wife who just yeah. wants to kill your dreams. And it is, it's clear that she wants him to be a grown-up, and that grown-up means not you. It may be a stock character, but I, I think she's quite good in the movie. She's she's good. And she's well, she's Blair Brown. She's always yeah. good. Blair Brown. Well, you know, I mean, everybody has an off day. You know, it's yeah. it's kind she's of she's great. She has a brainy. She, she's very real and she's very brainy. And you would understand how somebody would fall in love with her. And you see her trying to make this human being fully realized. But I think is written. The film is unfair and the film really does play. The no fun committee is her and he's fun. And look, I'm to the park and play with my son. I think there's, there's something to be said for the idea that he canonizes sort of an abs absentee father thing here in a way that uh, may be a little okay. uncomfortable. Fair enough. Uh, and, and if I could take a, just a quick note, you did just mention Carrie Fisher just a minute ago. And, uh, of course I want to take this opportunity to dedicate this episode, uh, on behalf of me, Drew and Bobby, we want to mention how much we will, we love and we'll miss Carrie Fisher. I, I think using Paul Simon as the link to that is perfect because of how closely yeah. related they were and how, how clearly they loved each other. And she died over the holiday break. Her, her passing broke the hearts of movie geeks all over the world. And she was a special woman, and we all love you, Carrie Fisher. Uh, all right, let's move on from that, from Carrie Fisher, to a movie about cannibals. She'd appreciate that. This one's called <laughs> Motel Hell. There's a friendly motel. We'd like a room for the night. Come on inside, I'll fix you up. Featuring a heated pool and competitive sports. And from a Vincent Tender Garden, their famous secret garden for very special guests. Drop in, you just might die laughing. Motel Hell rated R. When I think of this movie, I think of my dad standing above me with the Fangoria issue with Motel Hell on the cover in his hand. Clearly, vividly, I remember that being the issue as he said to me, this trash is going to rot your brain. 
you can't buy this anymore. My dad wouldn't even waste that. I'd come home from school or come home from a movie and the Fangoria would be shredded up into four quarters and thrown on my bed. I This is one of those movies. It is the kind of movie that even if you've never seen it, chances are you have a fondness for the poster or the tagline or just the idea that it's out there somewhere. Yeah, it's about a farmer who fattens up his stock and, and feeds on it. And his stock is, of course, people. One of the reasons that I think Motel Hell still holds a special place in the heart of horror geeks is because it has a very EC Comics tongue-in-cheek sense of humor. Whereas if it had been stark and serious, a la Chainsaw Massacre, it might just be relegated to the annals of uh, exploitation, like an Eaten Alive or something like that. But it has a very palpable and clear sense of humor about them about what's going on. So while there is some scary and very gruesome stuff, it's also pretty wacky funny. It's redneck Sweeney Todd. There's stuff in it like the garden of people that they're growing and things like that that are so surreal and strange. And the movie is so kind of goofy that even the title, the notion that it's just the motel hello, and <laughs> the, the O is out on. All right, you really didn't even work very hard to set that one up, huh? That's just, there it is. And I think one of the main reasons I like it is because while it does have a little bit of the DNA of the then burgeoning slasher craze, it's inspired by other stories, but it's not clearly ripping anything off. Here's the thing. When you're you're a filmmaker and you cast Wolfman Jack in any role whatsoever, I know you're not totally serious. It's cool. And Rory Calhoun is as Farmer Vincent. You cannot fault him for giving it anything less than 10,000% of his energy. And uh, it was an early film from Kevin Connor, who yep. went on to direct tons of B-movies and, uh, I guess, like Hallmark and Lifetime Channel stuff. TV God. Yeah, the guy worked on TV for years. Yeah. I pride myself on having seen or heard of, at least, the lion's share of, of the films from 1980. And this one, even though it stars Gary Busey, and uh, Annette O'Toole, I don't I don't even didn't even know this film existed. I think I mistook it for like a teen sex comedy and it's called Fooling Around. Oof. Drew, I, this know, one's all you, baby. All you. It's, it's crazy because you, you had two two young actors, Gary Busey coming off of Buddy Holly's story of Annette O'Toole, who had, had given some nice performances, including in one called One on One, this Robbie Benson movie. You put him together. You make a screwball sort of romantic comedy. You hope that it's going to work. It's that weird thing where you've got people who are redoing tropes and shapes of films from the yes. 30s. And they're yeah, trying it's to exact, do it. It's a lot like loving couples in that regard, where it's just it's just now we, these are contemporary actors oh. doing stuff that was old hat in 1939 screwball comedies. Gary Busey, whatever you want to say about him, either the pre-head injury Gary Busey or the post-head injury Gary Busey. At no point was he considered a nimble physical comedian. And that is what Foolin' Around would have needed if it was going to work. So uh, my big review would be Foolin' Around is a movie that exists that stars Gary Busey and Annette O'Toole. Yeah, Annette O'Toole, lovely woman. Deserved a bigger career, frankly. Don't you think? Don't understand how she wasn't on the top of a lot of people's lists because she was funny and she was interesting. And like you look at her and we'll get to this, but you look at her in 48 hours and the only reason the scenes with Nick Nolte's girlfriend even resonate at all is because she is 50 times better than she needs to be. And she did a forgotten movie in 1987, I think, with with Martin Short called Cross My Heart. And it's, you know, it's it's likable and forgettable, but she's great. I love Annette O'Toole. Let's move on to the next film. Starring another woman that I love. Her name is Jenna Rollins. 
and she stars in John Cassavetti's Gloria. For Gloria, the danger is always getting closer. I want two tickets. And getting closer is always the danger. Yes. Gloria. All we want is the book and the kid. Jenna Rollins is Gloria. She's trying to beat the mob at their own game. You let a woman beat you, Gloria, rated PG. Coming soon to a theater near you. This is a movie uh, about a tough, no-nonsense woman who takes under her wing a young Puerto Rican boy because some local thugs, mafioso thugs, are out to kill the boy. That sounds like an action movie, right? Well, and it was sold as an action movie to some degree, but you're talking about John Cassavetes. So this is what John Cassavetes thinks an action movie is. I'll take his model. It's an interesting version. I would argue that this might be the most audience-friendly movie that John Cassavetes ever wrote and directed in some ways feels like a down the middle Hollywood premise, which is you, you put the, this is a John Cassavetes take on mainstream material. It has some great moments. Jenna Rollins is fantastic. It definitely has some dry spots that, Oh, and John Adams, the kid, the kid that plays opposite her is awesome. Um, very good kid actor. Very good. It's kind of set up like the professional in that there's, um, there's hoodlums living next door to somebody. And then somebody comes in and there's, Bad shit happens and she winds up with the kid who she doesn't want. Um, what I find weird is the uh, the actor who plays the criminal, the father of the kid, is Buck Henry. Um, yeah, playing against type. <laughs> weird casting choice. Weird call by Cassavetes. But that's, you know, that's Cassavetes. That's what, makes him, that's what makes him interesting. But it is such a showcase for the things that Jenna Rollins could do that Hollywood never let her do. Yeah, and, and you want to see New York in 1980. Forget the Times Square movie. Watch this. And there's some good cat and mouse stuff in the film. And there's some you get a sense of the real texture of low life New York, not just New York, but the places that you wouldn't see if you didn't live there. I think that's what Cassavetes does so well is he adds texture that you feel is genuine and lived in. And Gloria, the reason that it works as well as it does is because when the kid is in peril, He's genuinely in peril. And when Gloria has to work her ass off to keep him alive, it's never easy. And I think that the movie earns everything it does emotionally. I think it's a really great example of the collaboration between this beautiful husband-wife team that left such a rich and dense body of work. Yeah, and like for a lot of people, you know, you'd say this is a bit more mainstream Cassavetes. But like most uh, film buffs, this was my entry point for Cassavetes. So, you know, oh, yeah, definitely the first Cassavetes film I ever saw. And uh, for years was the only Cassavetes film I had seen. And I kind of worked out from there when I went back to his work. All right. So we move on from a little known relatively to, but very good film to a little known and not very good film. Drew, what do you got? Oh boy. Uh, I feel like I'm saying, Oh boy, a lot this month, but that's, that's one of the things that you have when you have these giant months with 50 movies in them is you get some real highlights and then you get movies that don't even exist now. Good luck finding, which is brew. Uh, Terry Gar, Richard Benjamin, uh, as a married couple. And it plays a lot kind of like a less funny episode of bewitched. This was at that moment where, where because of Love at First Bite, Richard Benjamin was bankable in supernatural-themed comedies. And so it's, it's that thing where you see an actor who has a surprise hit and then just kind of leans into it. This is based on a fairly decent book called Conjure Wife um, and is played as, yeah, like you say, it's here's what I never understood. 
I think there is something inherently brilliant about the underlying premise of Bewitched, which is a man asking a woman to give up her power in, in a relationship. Please don't be what you are that attracted me to you in the first place because I'm terrified other people will notice it too. That metaphor is incredibly powerful and I, I think very honest. I think, you know, there's a lot of times you have a partner who tries to extinguish the other partner to some degree because they don't want them to outshine them or leave them or grow past them. And I think there's something very rich and potent in that. And yet, how often have they tried to make these movies and they just don't get it right? I think I Married a Witch and Bell Book and Candle might be my favorite examples, with Witch's Brew being how you take this material and miss every interesting thing about it, including casting Lana Turner in her last major film role and doing almost nothing with her. <laughs> Let, let's move on from that to what I consider probably my favorite film of 1980. Uh, it's also what I consider David Lynch's best film. They called him the Elephant Man. He was deformed beyond reason. Grotesque beyond understanding. Ridiculed beyond endurance. And courageous beyond measure. The Elephant Man, the film rated PG. Uh, I revisited The Elephant Man a few years ago, and it, it still breaks my heart. It's so Freddie Francis's cinematography is unreal. Uh, it's Anthony Hopkins as a doctor trying to uh, come to the aid of the John Merrick, a.k.a. the Elephant Man, played wonderfully by John Hurt and uh, and Bancroft also in the film. It is uh, one of the most beautiful black and white films you'll ever see. It is endlessly fascinating as a period piece, as a character study of the doctor, as as a showcase for Anthony Hopkins and as a, a study of the human condition in that we are fascinated by um, aberrations and, and fascinated. Uh, but then we are also repulsed and then we feel guilty. Uh, it is, it is a fascinating rumination on all these things. And I, I absolutely love the elephant man. If I can turn some people onto digging this movie up and watching it, I will be very happy. It's interesting. It was controversial, uh, when it came out specifically because the play is so different and was always meant to be staged with no, physical makeup so that you would focus on the spirit of the person playing him rather than the external. And the film went the other direction entirely and goes and gets you as close up as you possibly can be to the makeup. There are long, long sequences in this movie that are played where there's no hiding. You're just, there's John Hurt. There's the close up of what he looked like and you're, you're in it. Um, and, and, you know, Lynch certainly bookends this with some of his, ideas of industrial London and what that world felt like. And it is wrapped in some surrealism. There's the, there are lots of touches to this that don't totally make it realistic. Um, I find the movie fascinating. I got obsessed with the elephant man when it came out obsessed. I remember reading the book about the real elephant man. I remember seeing the film several times. I remember being fascinated by the entire idea of freak show culture and, uh, this was what led me to Todd Browning because I got fascinated by this. And then I read about the history of how freaks have been used in films and how the debate about using real people versus people in makeups. It's mesmerizing. I think it also is it 
gets to the material in some unusual ways in that I don't know that I think they land every punch they throw. I don't know if I think John Merrick is heroic, and clearly the film has a sense that it's trying to play him as a hero for continuing on in his condition and for how he handled things. Um, I, I think more than anything, John Merrick has played through this movie as a leaf on the wind where he has no power. It's about Anthony Hopkins, you know, uh, being a, a, a noble and uh, an honorable man who is trying to help someone. Uh, and but I think I think he's also career building. I yes, think he's yes, that's what I was going to get to that is that, you know, as he realizes what he has next to him, then he becomes a bit more opportunistic than one would hope. Uh, and, you know, then it, it gets into that double edged sword of people uh, empathize with John Merrick because they are initially fascinated by him. Is it pity? Is it curiosity? What is it? It's empathy. It really holds up as something that you go back and you look at and it feels like it, it stands outside of time. I It doesn't feel like it was made in 1980. It doesn't feel like it was made now. It doesn't feel like it was made in 1920. It just is its own thing. And I think that that is. It's one of the cases of you hire somebody who doesn't make mainstream films to make a movie that is aimed at the mainstream. And what you get is something far different than I think anybody would have guessed you were going to get out of this material. Well, uh, all right. And uh, we're going to close out with another very good film. Drew, our next movie is a film that was sold one way. And uh, there's a couple of films we talked about this week like this, uh, but is actually a richer film than it was sold as. And I, and I think a, a movie that when you go back and you look at it now feels kind of um, ahead of its time. It is the smart, I, I think genuinely feminist, Private Benjamin. I did join the army, but I joined a different army. Uh, I joined the one with the condos and the private rooms. <laughs> Goldie Hawn is Private Benjamin. Rated R. Opens Friday, October 10th. Check newspaper for local listing. Saw it in the movies with my sister. Didn't laugh. Didn't get it. I wanted, I thought it'd be like stripes. I, I was, I remember actively not liking it. Then splash forward probably 25 years later, saw it on HBO. And Private Benjamin is a lot more than just a, oh, spoiled woman goes into the army. That's the premise. But there's a lot. There, it's really well written. And Goldie Hawn is fantastic in this well, movie. I, I think the history, I think Goldie Hawn in general I, I, is one of the careers that, you know, when people, when Goldie Hawn passes in hopefully 70 years, then I think people are going to start to look back and they're going to write the history of her career. And they're going to see the, the gradual evolution of somebody who took control of an image that was dangerously sexist when, when it began. She was the giggly, bouncy little bikini thing. And that's all people saw at first. And watching her over the course of her career take control of not only her comic persona, but the material that she's doing, how she's doing it, how it's being approached overall, you get a sense of the real strength of Goldie Hawn, both as a person and a performer, and the intelligence she makes choices with she's yeah. a really smart developer of material yeah. and she switches from ditzy to to smart and from you know bubbly to to acidic she can yeah. do it all and this is a great vehicle for her it's like somebody said what do we got that we can plug goldie Hawn into this was yeah. hers and yeah. that's the thing is she she wasn't just 
especially by this point, she wasn't just taking what she was given. She had a sense of how she wanted to be portrayed on screen and she had taken control of it. And just the setup for this, the way she ends up in the army. I love the, the whole opening, which was, I remember my parents the first time through this, I almost didn't get to see the whole movie because the opening scene, she gets married. She's so excited about her marriage. It's her second marriage. This is amazing. She's got the man she's waited for her whole life. And on their wedding night, as they have sex, he dies. And that setup is played so beautifully and communicated so quickly and automatically tells you so much about who she is and what she wanted and what her uh, priorities were. And then the moment she enters the army, they have all this material to play because of that. It's really beautifully structured and written. And it's one of those shows where, or one of the films where, because there was also a television show, which was way broader and way more, I think, sitcom and silly with the same actress, Eileen Brennan, playing the part of the drill sergeant who is sort of the uh, antagonist in the movie opposite Han or, or her captain, I guess it is. Um, I, I think people think of the movie as broader than it is. And oh, yeah. it's not. It's really there's some really adult and interesting stuff in it. It's not great. And like Stripes, it kind of falls apart in the third act, but it, it means more. And I think there's more going on under the surface. So uh, that is it for October in which 1,700 films were released. Yes, thank you all for listening to 80s All Over. This was a uh, supersized episode, probably, and uh, we hope you're enjoying it. Please leave us a uh, an iTunes review. Not just a rating, a review. It is so important, guys. We yep. need to grow the audience for this we show. We really do. You guys keep uh, telling us how much you enjoy it. We love doing it. We need to grow this year. So 2017, if you're a fan of the show... The, all I would ask of you is carry that word to other people. Get people to listen to it. Start telling people about it and really make the effort to, to bring new people to us. Uh, we want to have a lot of fun with this this year. We have ideas for what we're going to do on the site, what we're going to do to expand things. We're having so much fun so far, and your feedback has been amazing. We'll see you next time for November 1980. <laughs>